Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. Colossians 1 tells us that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him and through him and to him all things were created, whether thrones or dominions or principalities, visible and invisible, all things were for him. And in him all things hold together, and in all things he is to be preeminent. And we want Christ to be preeminent this morning as we gather together as his people and we look at his word. If you have a Bible, open it to James chapter 1. We're going to read verses 5 through 8 in just a moment. We started a series through the New Testament letter of James. One of the most beloved and practical books in the New Testament, written by the half-brother of Jesus, James, who is the leader of the church in Jerusalem that we read about in Acts, and writes this letter, which may have been the first letter written that we now have as part of our Old Testament. It's a wonderful balance to the wonderful doctrine of Romans that we spent Two years working through the glory of the grace, the free grace of God that we are not saved by our works, but by faith alone and Christ alone, through grace alone. But true saving faith, a truly regenerated heart, somebody who is truly born again from above, their life will then, their affections of this new heart will then long for and go after God in obedience. And that's what the book of James, the letter of James is all about. Before I, I read verses 5 through 8, uh, let me just say that I am captivated every time we sing that song, His Mercy is More. This line says, He welcomes the weakest, the vile, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Friend, that's true of all of us in this room. If there is somebody in here today who is discouraged or potentially buying into a lie that you don't fit, that you are not welcome into God's people's house, into his house with his people, that somehow you are beyond God's grace, that is a lie, dear friend. That's a lie. And we're going to come this morning on the first Sunday of November when it's finally cold. Praise God. Summer's over. We're going to come to this Lord's table on the first Sunday of November and remember how he makes weak, vile, poor sinners like us worthy to be his children. Well, let me read James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. This is such a practical, beautiful, applicable text. James writes, verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let me pray. Lord, help us as we look at this text. Help us to understand what you intend through the Holy Spirit, through James that wrote this letter thousands of years ago, what you intend to say to your people then and now. Help us apply it to our lives. Make us more like Jesus. We don't want to go through the motions this Sunday. 
We want to be conformed into the image of your son that you promised this would happen for those whom you foreknew and whom you predestined in love to be conformed into the image of your son, Jesus. And for our friends that are gathered here this morning that don't know Jesus yet, I pray, God, that you would so overwhelm their hearts with the beauty and the sufficiency and the satisfaction that can only be found in Christ, that you would melt their hard hearts, that you would perform spiritual surgery on them and take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh so that they can believe in their only true hope, which is Jesus, and that they too can apply this text and seek true wisdom, which can only be found in Christ and his gospel. So help us now. Help me help these people that I love and pray it all. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I think this text is really clear. I think most of the book of James is actually really, really clear. So I want to give us three sentences that summarize James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, very quickly. And then I want us to spend the balance of our time applying and thinking about how we are to get this wisdom that James exhorts us to seek, which I think is really the point of these few verses in James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. Summary statement number one of James 1, 5 through 8, and it is this, is that the trials of life confuse and discourage us, and we need wisdom. That's the context of verses 5 through 8. He's writing that right after what we looked at last week, where James is exhorting us to count it a joy, to consider it joy, brothers, when we, when we meet, inevitably, trials of various kinds, everything that we, inf- we face in life. He's, he's, he's casting a wide net for broad application. He's saying, count it joy when you meet these trials, not if you meet these trials, but when you meet these trials, because you know that it's producing in you something, a a steadfastness, and that steadfastness is meant to take an effect, to have an effect on your life, which is to produce in us a maturity, a kind of spiritual perfection, which is not sinlessness, but a rootedness and a groundedness and a satisfaction in God as we await our final home, which is eternity with Him. And, And James is clear that these trials that we face will confuse us. Some notable examples of this, just to encourage you, if you're, if you're confused and you're discouraged because of the trials that you are inevitably facing in life, just take note of some examples in the scriptures of some of God's choice servants that faced trials and discouragement and needed wisdom. The first, I'll just summarize, is Abraham all the way in the beginning of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 12, God picks this man purely by grace. He chooses Abraham to be the man through which he would create a people in the Old Testament, which would become the nation of Israel, God's people through whom would come Christ, the Messiah. So essentially, he is choosing Abraham to be his man by which he begins the process of redemption, the bringing of the gospel, the saving of people. That's significant. And God is saying to Abraham, you're my man. Not one chapter later, after God speaks to Abraham and says, you're my man, he's so scared that he lies to this pagan king about his wife and says, she's my sister, because he thinks that this pagan king is going to take his wife because apparently she was attractive. (laughs) So God just spoke to you and said, you're my man, I'm going to create a nation through you, and eventually, you don't understand this yet, but I'm going to save the world through you. That would produce in me uh, strength and encouragement. One chapter later, he's lying with his tail between his legs. 
Another one of God's choice and wonderful prophets in the Old Testament, Elijah. And read 1 Kings 18 and 19 sometime this week or this afternoon. There's this incredible story about this man named Elijah who's one of God's prophets who is used by God in incredible, bold ways to call God's people to faithfulness in the Old Testament. And there's this one scene in 1 Kings chapter 18 where he is confronting these false prophets of Baal, these 450 false prophets of this false god named Baal. And he's so confident and he's seeing so clearly that he's taunting them. He's saying, hey, get your, get your false gods. Let's build this sacrifice here. You do what you're going to do. Let's see. Let's bring fire. Let's do this. And, and they, they're scurrying around, not knowing what to do. They're accepting his challenge. They're piddling around. And he's mocking them, saying, where's your God? Is he using the bathroom? I'll wait. I got time here. Come on. And then Elijah calls for fire from heaven, and God brings down fire and not only consumes the sacrifice of the altar, but consumes these prophets and smokes them. And chapter 18 ends with this wonderful statement that says that God was with Elijah. Three verses later in chapter 19, he's scared of this woman named Jezebel, and he runs from her and hides under a tree. (laughs) Life can get confusing. Peter, at the end of the Gospels, in John chapter 18, this bold disciple of Jesus who spent three years with him, as Jesus is being handed over to his enemies, as he's being betrayed by Judas in the garden after prayer, these priests and servants of the priests come to seize Jesus, and Peter is so bold in that moment that with all of these armed guards around, he draws out his dagger, and he cuts off this guy's ear named Malchus, who is one of the servants of the priests, cuts off his ear. And by the way, Jesus just picks it back up and puts it back on the dude's head and heals him. But then just verses later... Peter, after the crucifixion of, before the crucifixion of Jesus, is intimidated by a servant girl around a campfire. Abraham is a great man of God, and he's so scared he lies to a king. Elijah's this fierce prophet, and he runs from Jezebel. Peter's this bold man in the garden, moments later lying to a teenage girl around a campfire. The trials of life. Can I just get an amen? Can, as the old gospel preacher said, can I get a witness? Life can get confusing. Amen? All right. Just tracking. I know we're not, you know, we're not good at that, but you, we, we, this can be a two-way street now. Amen. Which leads us to the second summary of James 1, 5 through 8, is that, is that we should ask God for wisdom because he's a good father who will give it to us. That's the point that James is is telling us here very simply, saying, look, you're going to face trials. You lack wisdom, all of you, even the strongest among you. Look at Abraham, Elijah, and Peter. And so ask God, verse 5. Let him ask God. And what does God do? He gives generously to all without reproach. He doesn't scold his children for being confused. He doesn't cross his arms in heaven with a look of disgust on his face to Abraham and Elijah and Peter and you and me. He helps his children in their weakness. You know, I think of the two cultures that I've been in part of kind of vocationally, the army and the church. And I've noticed something about both cultures. Both of them I love. 
But I've noticed that um, in both cultures, there's often a pressure, a kind of latent subconscious pressure to act like you have it all together. Built into both cultures is a kind of insecurity. You guys are in the army, you know what I'm talking about. You show up and everybody kind of, there's a sort of hidden lingo in the platoon or the battalion or the company and you know, there's these weapon systems and you need to know it all and you need to, you need to, you need to know all these things and the SOP is the way you're going to do some particular maneuvers and you just kind of, you know, you don't want to be the guy that says, what are we doing now? Because you don't want to be the, the guy who's, you know, ate up, as we say in the army, right? And so you just kind of act like you know what you're doing. And so... <laughs> Sometimes that brings disastrous results. And in the church, too, you walk into, some of you right now, you walk into a room like this with a bunch of people, and it's just, I know, it's intimidating. It's kind of neat and exciting, but it's also intimidating in a strange sort of way, right? And there's just this kind of, one person's honest, there's just this kind of pressure. (laughs) There's this kind of pressure, and we feel, and really what it is is a kind of pride that, if we're just kind of honest and we ask some people, are we humble? Like, man, I barely, I barely have it together here that somehow it will reflect poorly on us. And, the, and what James is getting at here is he's looking, all of you lack wisdom, all of you do, and God's not going to scold you for not knowing what to do. So we should ask because he's a good father who won't, who won't call us out in front of the platoon or in front of the church. Which leads us to the third summary statement of James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, is that we should ask, we should ask for this wisdom and faith, trusting in God, not ourselves, or the, the wisdom of this world, or the world, this world for its wisdom. That's what he means when he says that we need not be double-minded. We should not be double-minded. We, we, that's where we get this word psychotic. That's what the, the, the Greek root of that word is psychotic. We're, 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 we're crazy. It's a kind of instability that leads to being tossed to and fro, going back and forth between two opinions, trusting in yourself and then trusting in God. And, and, and many of us live that kind of bipolar spiritual existence. In fact, I think all Christians to some degree are battling with this kind of spiritual bipolarity where we are, are fighting to trust in God even as we are fighting against trusting in this world and ourselves. And the world around, around us screams at us to trust in its wisdom where this passage screams at us and calls us to trust in God's wisdom. So let's spend the balance of our time answering this question. How do we get this wisdom? Some practical thoughts on how do we get this wisdom. I have four thoughts, and I hope it will help us in, in a practical way. How do we get this wisdom? And by the way, this wisdom is not, the context of what James means by wisdom here, is not so much what to do, thinking like in terms of like seeking God's will and some specific direction, should I marry this person? Should I take that job? Should I do this or move here? All, all those things certainly have their place in the Christian life. What I think is the context here of this wisdom is a kind of under, a discernment of God's hand and work in our trials. It's an understanding of what God is up to so that we get a kind of perspective in the trials that James says that we will inevitably face in verses 2 through 4. It's a kind of rootedness. It's a, it's a spiritual perspective 
that will fuel our endurance and our steadfastness that he calls for in verses 2 through 4. So how do we get this type of perspective, this, this wisdom, this, we might even say this spiritual maturity? One, through hard work. Through hard work. Oh, thanks, Brad. You, you, you studied all week just, just, just to tell me that. <laughs> well, yes. Yes. A healthy Christian who is growing in and pursuing wisdom, maturity, is one who understands that the Christian life takes effort. It takes cultivating and developing spiritual, and become familiar with this phrase, spiritual grit. Spiritual grit. My concern for us and my concern for myself is that in our gospel-centered, Christ-centered, grace-emphasizing stream that we find ourselves in as a church, which I do not apologize for, which I think is theologically right, but my concern is that sometimes people who emphasize the grace and the centrality and the work of God sometimes are prone to fall into an unbiblical imbalance about our responsibility to respond to the grace of God. Yes, we come into the Christian life through free, unconditional, electing, unearned grace. We are not saved by our works. But the Christian life, the sanctification, the growing in Christ that comes after the free salvation takes effort. It requires hard work. And this is the way that God has designed the world. It's part of God's plan. It's not merely a result of the fall. In fact, in the garden, in Genesis 1 and 2, even before the fall, we see God calling Adam to tend and to tame the garden. Work is a good thing. Work and effort and sweat is a good thing. It's part of how God has designed us to be his image bearers, to steward over his creation. We understand this in every other area of life. We know that if you want to get in, in shape to run a marathon, you, you have to train. We know that if you want, to, uh, you, you want to, you know, attain a degree or get through school, you have to study. We, we know that if you want to do anything, if you, if you want to, you know, plant a, a, a bush in your yard, you, you have to do some work to cultivate the ground. We understand that in every area of life, but we are prone to a kind of spiritual apathy which doesn't then transfer that instinct that we realize that everything else takes work into the spiritual life. But the scriptures are clear about this. Listen to Philippians 2. It says, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 1. Starting in verse 3, listen to this. Listen to the promises, but then also listen to the call to spiritual grit. Verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So I, I take that to mean that when God regenerates a person, he makes you a Christian, he gives you all that you need in Christ. It's yours. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, 
having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Listen to verse 5. For this reason, because you have it all, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. These are all action verbs that we have to do the acting. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, I just take to mean a lack of wisdom. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, in other words, not wise, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Then let me read verse 10 finally. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Uh, look, just the Christian life requires hard work. Let's, let's, not, let's not minimize that or forget that. And let's not be discouraged by that. Two, this is very practical, I hope. Through taking in God's word. Through taking in God's word. This is how God has given us means of grace. And when I say means of grace, I want you to think of your heart and your life as being like a lake, a pond. And God has trenched. He's digging these, he's, he's dug these canals that feed into your lake that, that are like tributaries by which he, he fills your lake with wisdom, with grace, with knowledge, with stability, with maturity. And, and one of the main trenches, one of the main canals one of the main tributaries and streams or means of grace that God has trenched into your heart is and has given us is his word. A healthy Christian who is growing in wisdom is one who works hard to regularly take in God's word through personal and communal Bible reading. And now you're saying to me, Brad, oh, come on, you're just telling me to read my Bible. Well, Yes, I am. I think that's, that's ground zero in fighting for a wisdom. God has given you a wisdom. Listen to some scriptures that point us to this. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. We also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So this word of God is, Hebrews tells us that it's living and active. When you read the word of God, even when, when you discipline yourself to take in God's word on a regular basis, there are things that will happen to your mind and your soul and your maturity that will be imperceptible to you in the moment. That really, just like when you eat vegetables, you're not totally aware of all of the good things that are happening in your digestive system to give you nutrients in your body, right? But it's happening. The same thing with God's Word. It's at work in you believers. It's living and active. It, it forms us. Listen to Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise. There's our word wisdom, making wise the simple. So some practical encouragements for those of us who struggle with taking in God's word, which I am pastorally assuming is all y'all. All right? Some practical encouragements for taking in God's word regularly 
which I take as all of us. Amen? Okay, don't, no, don't, don't, don't even, don't even. Me included. First, remember that this takes hard work, right? This takes grit. It's hard to establish a regular rhythm of taking in God's word. Let's admit that, okay? Okay, here's some, here's some thoughts about how to do this in your life, how to build this into your life. First, plan a time. Just plan, just right now, right? Think about your day. Create space in your day. We create space in our days for everything that we really want to do. We, I, we create space for lunch, for breakfast, for dinner. I create space in my day to DVR or record particular shows, new shows that I want to catch up on. We create space, time to exercise. All, all these things have their importance in our day. Create time. Create space. Plan a time. We, we, we plan to hunt. We plan to watch a show. We, pl- we plan all sorts of things. Plan a time right now. This is, and you may, well, friends, this takes hard work. This takes grit. Plan a time. Create space in your day. In the morning. And it, I'm not going to be legalistic on what that looks like in your calendar. Fight to say that I'm going to guard, I'm going to guard this time to give myself to taking in God's Word, to reading God's Word. Secondly, start, if you're not in the habit of this, if you're not in the habit of regularly reading God's Word, start slow and start small. Read a proverb a day. There's 31 proverbs, they, just corresponding with the, the, the date of the day. Read, read the proverb that corresponds with the date of that day. Read a psalm each day. Maybe consider reading a chapter from a New Testament letter, a shorter New Testament letter like Colossians and Ephesians, which tend to be more straightforward. At this point, you're just trying to get yourself in the spiritual habit of coming to God regularly. And you need to practice something more than just a couple times to make it a habit. So, so success here is not you understanding everything, not, not you taking, being an expert on what you're reading, but just the physical discipline of actually coming to God in His Word. At this point, don't expect understanding. Don't expect some riveting spiritual experience. We are too sentimental in our culture. We are too addicted to all the feels. And if we don't feel the feels, we will push away from the table and go run off to something else that gives us the feels. That's immaturity. But just coming to God, at this point, we're just trying to establish a habit. So read a, read a New Testament letter, chapter 1 of Colossians. Just read through it in that week. Consider maybe reading a chapter from the gospel. I'm not, I'm just, I know I'm adding this. Pick one of these. Read a chapter from the gospel. I recommend starting with the gospel of Mark. I know that people often say we should read the gospel of John first. I think that's a wonderful thing to do. I just, I like Mark. Mark is shorter. Mark seems clearer. Mark seems more straightforward to me. It's only 16 chapters. In two weeks' time, you can read the gospel of Mark as you come to it daily. And that will be a great sense of encouragement to you spiritually. Read, read Mark and get in the habit. Spend two weeks of going through the gospel of Mark, a chapter a day. And then over time, slowly introduce some of the Old Testament. Start with the histor- historical books like Genesis through like uh, Nehemiah. 
Those tend to be just like Nehemiah, Esther. Those tend to just be a, a record, a historical narrative, a story of what God is doing in his people. Then the prophets, Isaiah through Malachi, tend to be more difficult language to understand. I'd start with the, the historical books, just Genesis through like Nehemiah, Esther. Just take those in and read a story. And if you don't understand all that you're reading, don't get bogged down. When you were three, you didn't understand all of the English that was being spoken to you. But you didn't just stop, you didn't just run with your fingers in your ear away from it saying, ah! I mean, maybe you did that for other reasons because you were just a little toddler. But you just, you keep listening to unfamiliar language and over the, time, over the course of time, it becomes more familiar. Friends, I promise you that will happen for you if you come, if you discipline. It won't happen if you say, okay, Brad said we need to read our Bible, so I'm going to do it. So I'm gonna, and then three days into it, you just kind of give up. It won't happen. But if you remember, it takes grit. Give yourself to this, and you will grow in your understanding. Maybe get a good study Bible that just gives you some good notes to kind of orient yourself. And don't get bogged down if there is much of the Bible that you don't understand. Welcome to what it means to be human. One of the writers of the Bible, Peter, who was one of the three closest to Paul, I mean to Jesus, in his earthly ministry, wrote in his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 3, read it at the end, Peter says, you know, there's some things that Paul wrote that are hard to understand. I want to give Peter a hug someday when I get to heaven. Thanks, Pedro. Thank you. So we have a Bible writer inspired by the Holy Spirit, inspired to write that sometimes the Bible's hard to understand. I take great heart in that. Consider eventually maybe giving yourself to a Bible reading plan. Next, just give yourself grace. Give yourself grace. You will not do this daily. You will fail. You will skip a day. Give yourself grace. Get back into it. It takes hard work. Ground zero of spiritual warfare is the enemy accusing you. See, you're not going to do it. See, yeah, you heard that message. See, this is just you. See, you're, you will never be able to do this. See, no, you can't. That's a lie. Fight. Right then, fight. That's ground zero. That's, that's, that's a thought that you need to take captive. No, that's not true. Get back into it. It's been a week. It's been two weeks. It's been a month. It's been six months. Get back into it. Fight. Fight to take in God's word. Another thought, consider reading the Bible with others. Maybe meet once a week to read through a book together. Maybe a, a two men in this room or two ladies in this room would just consider meeting together to establish a kind of rhythm of taking in God's word together by meeting together. And when you meet together, you just actually read God's word out loud to one another slowly and you encourage one another. You don't need a, you don't need a, a, a Bible study. You don't need some commentator. You, you just, what did Christians do before the American publishing industry? How did they live before the 1800s? Well, they just simply read God's word, I think. Paradigm shifted, right? And praise God for all the resources we have, but sometimes they can convolute our souls. Amen? So just simply read 
God's word together. And then finally, consider listening to the Bible. We have access to audio Bibles. Listen to a chapter in your car as you drive to work, when you work out, when you're doing chores around the house. Take in God's word. Friends, none of these things are perfect. We're not perfect. The spiritual life is not lived out perfectly. It takes grit. But when you take in God's word, you will find yourself learning the language of the Bible, which will make you wiser. It will, it will make you wiser. And the Bible's not like an answer book. D- don't think about just reading a devotion. Don't read just one verse and then something that Spurgeon says about that verse. Although if you're going to read a devotional, Spurgeon's is a great to read, great one to read. But read through whole books of the Bible over the course of time, and it'll give you a sense of the terrain of the Bible. And it may not answer a specific question that you have, but it will make you more stable and wise, and it will put your feet underneath you, and you will be more mature over the course of time. I guarantee it. Third thought about how to get wisdom is through giving ourselves to the local church. You can tell, friends, that this is not rocket science. Fight for it, read your Bible, give yourself to the local church. A healthy Christian is one who is growing in wisdom, who is working hard to give themselves to meaningful, accountable relationships with other Christians, and I want to put this important qualifier on it, in the context of the local church. I think God has given us I know this is a means of grace. This is a canal that he's trenched into the heart and mind and soul of every Christian, an admonition that he wants to pump water into our souls, spiritual water into us, is he has given us a body, the church. Now, in one sense, we are connected to all Christians everywhere that name the name of Jesus. That's what it means to be part of the people of God. Praise God for that. Do you realize that? That you are, you are spiritually united with believers in Africa and Europe and Asia. You are closer to them in Christ than you are even to your own blood relatives that don't know Jesus. There is a beauty about the, the every tribe and tongue nature of all of redemption. That's why it's so beautiful when I fly to India or I fly to Uganda or we go anywhere else that I'm with these brothers and sisters who are so different from, from, from me culturally, but we are knit together in the spirit. Praise God for that. But I can't do life with my brothers and sisters in India or Uganda on a daily basis. But I am called to do life with you in accountable, clear ways, the local church. So we have the universal church all around the world, all those that are trusting in Jesus. And we have the local church. God has given us local churches. And praise God for other local churches. Of course we want to be connected and friends with other Christians in our city and other local churches. But we have a special relationship with one another. With one another. I am more responsible for you and you are more responsible for me. I'm more accountable to you and you're more accountable to me than you are to other Christians in this city who are part of other local churches. And God has designed it that way for our good. Listen to some scriptures that encourage us to do this. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against each other, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ 
Rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. There's that word again. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Friends, I think the clear context of Colossians 3 is the gathering of the local church in worship. Of course this has application to my friends who are part of other churches in our city. And I want to treat them in this way. But it has a special clear application to, to us as a local church. That we're, to, that we're to, love, to bear with one another. God is going to, he has designed putting Christians together who are different from one another. Who are going to rub each other the wrong way. And actually, the friction that is inherent in committing to one another is part of God's design to make us more like Him and create in us a wisdom. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. I read this often. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. I think implicit in that is, is, is a kind of committed relationship to a specific local church because who's over you? It's not just everybody that seems to be older than you in the Lord or some pastor sort of out there or some elder from this church or that church. But I think implicit in that is that there is a kind of committed relationship between Christians in a local church where they know who their leaders are and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And then listen to verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Again, I think implicit in that is this idea of a kind of committed relationship that Christians have with one another in the context of the local church. And let's admit that we don't do this perfectly. We don't do this very well, I think, in our American culture. But that doesn't mean that we don't have to fight for it. Remember, remember what we talked about at the beginning is that all of this requires grit. It requires effort. It's hard it's hard to get to know one another. It's hard to do life with one another. It's hard to bear with one another. It is. It, again, can I, can I get a witness? Huh? It's hard. It's hard. And we will discourage one another. We will let each other down. We will have blind spots. We will rub each other the wrong way. But God, God has designed this so that we would live in this way. This is some statements from our church covenant that we read together at, at our member meetings. And we're having a member meeting tonight as Springer led us soon. If you're a member of Crosspoint, and I'm going to talk more about that in just a second. If you're a member of Crosspoint, you should come to our member meetings. We have them once every other month, generally on the first Sunday night of the month. And it's a time when we talk about family business as a church. We do really important things like elect leaders of the church, elders of the church, if you're a member of the church, you learned in our membership class that you're responsible for that. We do things like hold each other accountable. Jesus says in Matthew 18 that there's a way that we are to go about holding one another accountable in the local church. He says that if there's sin amongst you, if you know somebody's in sort of unrepentant sin, you're to go to that brother and you're to confront them in all humility. And if they refuse you, then you're to take two or three witnesses with you and plead with that brother or sister to turn from their sin because you care for their soul. You're not saying that you're sinless. You're just, you're, you're so loving that despite your own imperfection, you're going to that person pleading with them because you're worried about them spiritually because of their unrepentant sin. And then Jesus says that if they refuse even to listen to two or three witnesses along with you, tell it to the church 
Who's the church? I think it's a group of people that have committed to live together. We don't broadcast it across the worldwide church net. We tell it to the local church. And if they refuse even to listen to the gathered church, then what are you to do? You know what Jesus says? Sweet Jesus with, you know, wavy brown hair and blue eyes. You know, sweet Jesus who's just got this wonderful... You know what Jesus tells his people to do to people who are in persistent rebellion against his kingship? He says, put that person out of the church and treat them like a tax collector or a Gentile. And if you're reading through the whole Bible, by the way, that's not a verse you skip over. That's not a verse that shows up in devotionals a lot with flowers written on the top of the page. You know? And Jesus tells us to do this. Why? Because Jesus intends, listen to this, Jesus intends for our accountable life together where we know each other our grace-filled interaction with one another, to be part of the means by which we protect one another spiritually and help one another stay in wisdom. It it is. And so we gather at member meetings, and we if you're a member of Crosspoint, you should come to these things, and you should take these things as your responsibility. Listen to what we recite together, just a portion of our church covenant. It says, We will be devoted to one another in brotherly love. With humility and gentleness, we will patiently bear with each other, forgiving, encouraging, and building one another up, exercising watchfulness over each other, and admonishing one another when necessary. You know, it's our responsibility to every one of us. You know, sometimes I'll hear from somebody, hey, have you seen Bob? Yeah, you seen Jim? You seen Susie? You seen Sally? And we think, you know, it's kind of, Pastor, why don't you call them? Well, I'd I'd love to, but but part, part of, it's your responsibility too. Not to just wonder, to be responsible for people around you, to know that if you're a member of Crosspoint, you should have a member directory and you should know, you should pray through those things it, regularly. You should know. It, this is the beautiful responsibility that we have. We will carry, I go on, we will carry each other's burdens, rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. We will not neglect to gather together, but will support and treasure the biblical preaching of the whole counsel of God, the faithful observance of baptism and the Lord's Supper and the loving exercise of church discipline. Church discipline is what Jesus calls us to do, which I just spoke about in Matthew 18, to take life seriously. And if we know that a person is in unrepentant sin, to discipline, to care for that person. Brothers, we are to gather together. Gathering with our saints should take top priority in the Christian's calendar. I say this not as a scold, but as a pastoral encouragement. One of the things that concerns me about our culture and at times people in this church who I love dearly, is that gathering with the local church is just one of several options that they have. And oftentimes other options win out. And it's just not good for your soul. It's not how you grow in wisdom. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the mainstreams by which God brings wisdom and maturity to us living together in this kind of accountable way. Don't forsake it. Don't neglect it. In our age of individuality and a plethora of options, I exhort and encourage us and plead with us to make giving yourself to meaningful membership, if you're a Christian, in the local church, a top priority in your life. If you're not a believer yet in Jesus, I'm not asking you to join the church. I'm wanting you to hear the gospel I'm wanting your heart to be changed and regenerated by God, and then we'll talk about this. But if you are trusting in Jesus, 
it is biblical for you to have a formal connection with a group of other believers, and we call that church membership. What's our process for that here at Crosspoint? We have a membership class that we offer, reg- offer regularly, several times, uh, uh, pr- probably five or six times a year. We're just finishing one up. We've got, we're finishing up part two of that class this Monday. And we ask you, if you're a Christian, to come to that class to hear what we learn, what we believe about the Bible and important doctrines, about what we believe it means to be a member of the church. Make sure that you're baptized. And then we ask you to tell us how you became a Christian. We want to make sure that you understand the gospel. And then we present you to the church for membership. And then we become accountable to you in specific ways that the Bible says that we are accountable to. Jesus tells us in Matthew 18 that if we're in unrepentant sin that that person continues to, to reject his lordship, that you're to put the person out of the church. Well, what, how can you be put out of something unless there's something to be put into? Does that make sense? And there needs to be a kind of process by which somebody comes into the church. Now, in one sense, if you're believing in Jesus, hear me on this, if you're believing in Jesus, you're part of the universal body of Christ. If you're trusting in Christ... And you walk out of here and a meteor falls from heaven and crushes you and you die, you will go to heaven and be with Jesus. You're not saved by baptism. You're not saved by good works. You're not saved by church membership. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But if God gives you more than a few minutes after your salvation, he has given you a stream to your heart to build wisdom into you, which he puts you in the family of God, which isn't just the universal family of God. It finds its expression in the local family of God, which is the church. And that's God's design for you to bring wisdom and accountability to your soul. Every week, every month, several times, the pastors and elders look through every name, every member that is a member of this church, and we pray for you, and we look at your faces, and we plead with God to be gracious to you. And we know about specific situations. We ask God to to just bring hope and healing and reconciliation in all of them because we are particularly accountable to one another in that way. Give yourself to the local church. Spurgeon said that it is the dearest place on earth. I think he's right. Finally, how do we get wisdom? Through remembering and clinging to the gospel through remembering and clinging to the gospel. Yes, it takes grit. Yes, God's given us his word. Yes, God's given us his people, the local church. But let's remember and prioritize the centrality of what Christ has done for us and in him and only him and what God has done in him can true wisdom be found. This world, no matter how much Bible we know, no matter how strong of a local community and church that we find ourselves in, no matter how tough and gritty we are, this world will still beat us down. And we need to remember in those moments that our hope is not in the means of grace. It's not in grace itself. It's not in merely toughness or reading the Bible or even the local church, as wonderful as those things are. But our hope is only in Christ alone. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. In other words, the world looks at this this gospel that we preach and they think it's folly. You mean that God, who created the world, would let it fall 
And the way that he would reconcile the world to himself is by becoming a man, God the Son, becoming a man, and then allowing himself to be crucified on the cross, to bear the Father's wrath, to extinguish it and remove it, and rise again in victory, and now command all those that will turn and trust in him to believe in him, to be saved and reconciled. You mean that's how God's going to fix this mess? The world thinks that's foolish, but Paul is telling us here it's the wisdom of God. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? The world says, get wise by trampling over others and gather all that you can for yourself, and the strongest win. And the gospel says the opposite. It turns the wisdom of this world on its head and says that God, through humility and allowing himself to be crucified by the very creation that he created, will bring reconciliation. He brings life through death. For since the wisdom of God, verse 21 the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. This message that I'm preaching now that we preach every Sunday, in a sense, according to worldly wisdom, is foolish. And some of you came in here not believing it over the years, and God slowly drew you, and you find yourself caught up in a riptide of grace, and you're like, I can't believe this. I actually believe this. God is drawing me to him. Yes, verse 21 is happening to you. God is saving you through the folly of the wisdom of the cross. He's causing you to finally look away from yourself and to him. To the world it's foolish. To God it is alone wise. For Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. <laughs> But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. In other words, consider how God made you a believer. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish. He chose unwise people like you and me who are fumbling about in the mess of our own broken sinful lives. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose to take people like you and me and save them so that it would be obvious to the world that salvation doesn't rest in us but in him. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. <laughs> and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. You who don't read your Bible. You who can barely make it to church half the time. And I'm not commending those things. I'm just encouraging you in where you are. And because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, you who's still struggling with that sin for years, 
You who is so insecure, you who doubts your salvation, you who had that terrible thing that happened to you, you who have gone through that horrific trial, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In other words, he did it all. He made you alive. He gave you faith. He turned your heart to himself and he caused you to look upon Jesus and trust in him and not yourself. He did So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, which is wisdom. Amen. Amen. And amen. We're coming now to this table, this Lord's table. If you're a believer in Jesus, you're trusting in Christ for your salvation, you're welcome to this table. The Lord's Supper is something that local churches are to do as a family. It's a family meal. At Crosspoint, we invite not just members of Crosspoint, but members of the body of Christ. If you are trusting in Jesus, you're welcome to this table with us. If you're not trusting in Jesus, you should not receive this meal, not because we are trying to exclude you in any way, but because we are trying to biblically love you And we don't want you to partake in this meal, which is a confession of everything that we've said, unless you truly believe it. We don't want to cause you to do something that you, we don't want you to go through the motions. But if you're a believer in Jesus, you're welcome to come to this table and to trust in Jesus and to find wisdom in Jesus who laid down his life, whose body was broken for us, that's what the bread means, and whose blood was spilled for us, that's the cup, so that we might walk in the new covenant relationship with God, who loves his people, who's joined himself to us, who has become for us wisdom and righteousness, and who has reconciled the people to himself. Come and feast and be satisfied in the wisdom of the gospel together. Lord, help us. Help us as we come to this table, prepare our hearts. As Paul commands us in 1 Corinthians 11, we examine ourselves. And any any honest examination of our lives will cause us to look up again afresh to our fresh need for grace. To remember that Only by Christ can we be reconciled to you, that your son died and rose again for us. May it produce in us humility for one another. May we love one another better. And may we come fresh, being satisfied with bread from heaven, Jesus himself. In Jesus' name I pray.